Well, cost escalations will always remain a risk. We try to mitigate those as much as possible with a guaranteed maximum price contract from our general contractor. And that means that they're gonna go out and bid this project. They're gonna get subcontractor bids, material bids, and they cannot exceed that cost unless there is a material unforeseen issue. You know, weather delays, or again, like a environmental impact problem that we just didn't forecast. So we mitigate it with that, and we also mitigate it with a heavy contingency. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build multiple streams of passive income through real estate investing. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jacob Vanderslice from Van West Partners. And today we're talking about buying existing self-storage facilities, comparing that to developing new self-storage facilities. Jacob does both, and we're talking about the relative advantages and disadvantages of either strategy. We dig into the specifics of developing new self-storage facilities right off the bat, some good and bad decisions that you can make if you're developing a new self-storage facility, pitfalls to look for, and so much more in there. I love self-storage as an asset class, and I'm happy to talk with an expert like Jacob on this interview today and share his lessons with you. I think you're going to learn a lot. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I help busy people passively invest in commercial real estate, specifically multifamily and self-storage properties. If you'd like to learn more about what I do and would like to learn about investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form and schedule a call, and we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. If you're an Apple Podcast user and you enjoy the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your ratings and re reviews. I get to see that you're engaging with the content and I get to see that you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, once again, our guest is Jacob or Jake Vanderslice. Without any further ado, here we go. Jacob, thank you so much for joining us today. For our listeners out there, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and what you invest in? Taylor, good to be here. Thanks for having us on. My name is Jake Vanderslice. I'm a principal of Van West Partners. We're a private equity shop based out of Denver, and we focus on developing, buying existing facilities, and operating self-storage. Awesome. I love it. I'm a big fan of self-storage investing. I've been investing in self-storage myself for a few years now. And we've been talking for a little while. I really wanted to dig in today in terms of investing in existing self-storage properties compared to developing new self-storage properties, your experiences around there, and things to take into consideration if folks are looking at that type of a deal. So where do you think is the best place to start with that conversation? Buying new, well, buying existing versus building new? Well, well, we'll kind of meander between both and compare Sounds and good. contrast both strategies. You know, it's really, it's really about risk appetite to a degree and the length of time it takes to get to cash flow. So if you're buying an existing facility that's been operating for some number of years, you have a you have a quantifiable revenue stream that you're purchasing. And your intention obviously is to probably raise rents, control expenses, but you know if you don't execute on your business plan, you know how the deals perform for some number of years based on the financials the seller gave you. So they're arguably a little bit more downside protected. Now, development is completely different, especially if you're buying, uh, and when I say development, I don't mean 
adding additional square footage onto an existing facility. I mean, buying raw land, getting it titled and building a, a new building. Development is very different. It's got risk profiles that buying an existing facility doesn't have. One obvious example are hard costs, especially in today's environment. You could have rock solid subcontractor bids and a, a trusted construction team, but you still have a pretty substantial risk of spending more on the project than you thought you would. You could encounter a, a groundwater issue, an environmental issue potentially, or your phase two didn't catch. So you've got the hard cost side. And then the, the second risk that you have, which I think is even more meaningful than the hard cost side, is underwriting and quantifying the future revenue streams. So you're looking at today's submarket, today's uh, unit types and rent rates, and you're, you're assuming a certain leasing velocity when you deliver the project after building it, which will take you probably a year to build. You're assuming a certain number of net units that are absorbed every month. Then you're later assuming years after you open a stabilized net operating income figure or stabilized revenue stream. And you, it can be as conservative as possible. And at the end of the day, you're still predicting the future to a degree. We're doing that for all of our investing, of course, but deals are so sensitive on the revenue side. If you miss a rent on a given unit type and you have hundreds of them, you miss it by 15 or 20 cents a month. That's a material impact on the total value of the deal. Now, the upside to developing is especially now the barriers to entry for new development have never been higher. Cities are pretty averse to new storage development. They're pulling back on their zoning code. Hard costs are obviously through the roof. So it's tough to get projects entitled and it's tough to execute on a ground up development these days for all the reasons we just talked about. So if you can build a class A product that's very difficult to replicate, inherently when it comes time to monetize on that project, there's probably going to be more value created on a brand new facility than buying a 25 year old one that you just kind of make a little bit better. So the potential upside is certainly there and uh, the potential downside is there too, more so than buying an existing deal. Part of the reason that we like the development strategy these days is we see, frankly, 25 year old junk in tertiary markets trading in a stabilized four cap. <laughs> so if you, can, if you can build a new facility in a primary market, it's class A and climate controlled and build that to a pro forma seven and a half or eight cap, you're gonna be a little bit better off. So inherently riskier, but potentially more upside. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Now, there's a lot you mentioned in there, hone back in on one aspect of that, which was the initial lease up. So you build the property, but once it's built, it, it's empty and you need to get tenants and, and paying customers in there. How long does that process take typically in a new self-storage development? Well, we just bought a development acquisition last week in the Colorado Front Range. And it was an unusual situation because uh, we bought it with a permit in hand and fully entitled. There was a process kind of getting up to closing a force. That one we anticipate taking a year to build and then three years to stabilize after it opens. Wow. So self-service, it's kind of funny. People think that um, they're not necessarily inaccurate, but people think the bigger facility you build, the better because you can amortize more of those fixed costs across more units and more net rentable square feet. What they don't think about though, is a storage unit is a storage unit and you have to lease it up. And if you have 1200 units versus 700, it's going to take you a lot longer to lease up 1200 than a whole 700. So from a, from an IRR perspective and a timing of cash flows perspective, right sizing and new developments, very important, but we underwrite a three-year stabilization period from, um, from delivery. 
in the first year, we have a 20% concession from market rates. Year two, we have 15%. And then we're close to full market rates on year three. Okay. And, yeah. And during, during lease up, you, you know, you're, you're less concerned about your rental rates and more concerned about just getting customers in the door because some revenue is better than none. So typically, especially in the first couple of months, depending on when you open, rents are heavily discounted. Okay, great. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, that's an interesting topic about not overbuilding. So I would imagine in, in many cases, you're still winding up with leftover acreage that, hey, you could build you know, square footage on that in the future and you leave that as potential upside for either yourself later or the next buyer down the road. Or you could go out the other direction and say, we're just going to build bigger units and take up the entire lot. How do you how do you make that decision? It depends on the lot size. On this acquisition from last week, it's on a lot more land that we're going to build on. So we could have built more units. This one will be about just under 800 units and about 80,000 net rentable square feet. That's still a good size facility, but you know, public storage is out there building 150,000 foot facilities frequently. So that seems to kind of be the the right size for getting the appropriate scale across larger square footage, but also not making the facility too big. So if it leases up quickly and we find that there's a ton of demand in the submarket years down the road, we'll certainly consider an expansion, but uh, nothing's in the cards for that right now. So okay. we, we kind of thought for this market, for the unit mix that we're underwriting to, that square footage is a, is a good size. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Now, it's no secret that materials and labor prices have been all over the place for the last uh, couple of years. How do you project that in a, in a development that you're planning you know, today or this most recent one that you did? How do you plan for future fluctuations in those costs, you know, commodity prices, that kind of a thing? Because I mean, inflation has been higher than it has been for a long time for the past few years, but is that going to continue? How do you build that into your business model? Well, cost escalations will always remain a risk. We try to mitigate those as much as possible with a guaranteed maximum price contract from our general contractor. And that means that they're going to go out and bid this project. They're going to get subcontractor bids, material bids, and they cannot exceed that cost unless there is a material unforeseen issue, you know, weather delays or again, like a environmental impact problem that we just didn't forecast. So we mitigate it with that. And we also mitigate it with a heavy contingency. So we're carrying in general between site contingency, hard costs, and soft costs, we're carrying all in about 10%. Um, and round numbers on this particular project, uh, that's about a million dollars. So we can be a million dollars over our guaranteed maximum price contract with our GC and still be within our total project cost forecast. Again, you can't like any, like anything, you can't eliminate risk in investing. We do everything we can to reduce the risk as much as possible. So we get our bids up front, get a price locked in with our GC. We carry contingency and uh, hope there's enough fat that digests any unforeseen. Great. So, but my understanding is from our conversation prior to our recording, you're not 100% focused on new development these days. You're still buying existing facilities. Is that right? Do I understand that correctly? We are, we are, we are, um, we, we've done a fair amount of development, but we haven't done it for a while. And the reason we haven't is the market just hasn't made sense. It's been oversupplied, rents were high enough, and now suddenly it makes sense again. <laughs> so all of our other deals, really the last four or five years have been value add existing facilities. So we simply source deals that are under managed, buy them, 
We implement some nominal capital improvements, and then we mainly add value through effective operations. So whether that's through occupancy growth, marking below market rents up to market rents, expense controls, um, the, the number one goal in all these deals is simply revenue growth. Great. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great plan. But you mentioned earlier in our, our interview here about the multiples cap rates that folks are paying and the market is paying for older product in many markets. But presumably, you know, you're working on avoiding that particular dilemma when you're buying existing properties. So how do you build that buy box, if you will, for existing properties and say, hey, this facility is not too old. It's priced right. You know, how do you how do you kind of make sense out of that situation in the market? Well, to start that line of thinking of, before we talk about cap rates, you kind of have to quantify it and make sure that we're talking apples to apples on cap rates. So I mentioned earlier, we see junk trade and a stabilized forecap. That means that there's not much room to grow NOI other than just kind of inflation and maybe just marking a few customers up to market rents. There's not a lot of meat on the bone going to that deal at a forecap. So we'll go into deals at a forecap or even a, a two cap or a negative cap rate if it's empty and new. But our goal is to always stabilize it to a mid sevens to eight yield on cost. As far as market selection and deal selection, we primarily first look at markets with good real estate fundamentals. Is there population growth? Uh, is there housing density? It doesn't really matter if it's in a market with 40,000 people or 100,000 people in the trade radius. What matters is just housing density. Incomes matter too. There's a relationship between area median incomes and storage rents, but density is more important. We also look at supply ratios and we've all heard about this over the years, I'm sure, analyzing, looking at self-storage investments. But historically, I think nationally there's about eight square feet per capita of self-storage. And if you're in a market over eight square feet, maybe you're oversupplied. If you're under square eight square feet per capita, maybe you're undersupplied. We found that ratio to still hold water, but we've also found that markets with lower rents can sustain higher supply ratios because more of the consumers in that market can afford to store. There's a market south of Denver called Colorado Springs, and it's like 12 square feet per capita. And the supply ratios down there may be higher, but their occupancies are all in the 90s because their rents are so low. So we kind of analyze the market rents. And we we also understand that if we're buying a deal in a high high uh, square foot per capita market, as long as the rents are low enough, we're gonna, we're gonna fill up our deal. We're also analyzing subjectively and objectively the risk of the introduction of new supply. So are there any building permits that have been pulled? in the three mile trade radius, is there, are there any concept reviews that have been scheduled with the city to pre-fly to storage development? We're also looking at zoning. So how many how many parcels in a given submarket are available for storage development as a use by right? And that varies, varies from market to market, but generally they're fewer than there were a couple of years ago, just because cities don't love self-storage. They're kind of pulling back on their zoning codes across the country. So yeah, supply ratios, rooftops, housing density, good real estate nuts and bolts, and just understanding the risk of the introduction of new supply and how it's going to affect you. Okay. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. But I'd like to kind of highlight that difference in the the metrics of the national average being eight square foot per capita, but you're finding that in Colorado Springs, for example, 12 square foot per capita works, but that's 50% higher than the baseline national average, which to me indicates that that national average target 
might not be that useful all the time. Yeah. Would you agree? I was certainly alluding to that. Yeah, it, it's been, it used to be more of a rule of thumb that people yeah. kind of lived and died by to a degree, but now it's that's really not the case. There's, I mean, we're we're in markets in North Carolina with thirteen or fourteen square feet per capita, and our deals are full because a lot of people want to store. Rents are cheap, and uh, it just varies from market to market. It's like saying a, you know, single family home average in the U.S. is whatever it is. <laughs> so that's value you're underwrite too. Yeah, it, it varies from place to place. So getting into the details pays off. You got to get into it. The it somehow does. Yes. Yeah, but they but they never go like you think they will. The model's always wrong, right? It's either wrong, <laughs> the right way or wrong the the wrong way, but it never perfectly matches the spreadsheet. That is true. That is true. So in the self storage space, folks, myself included, often talk about the upside of competing with or buying from mom and pop operators. But in the space you're operating in, you're getting into the the REIT territory, right? They go a bit bigger, but I'd like to get into the topic of how you compete with the REITs out there and, you know, stay, stay relevant and get deals done. Yeah. The answer to how we compete with the REITs is not well. <laughs> um, if it's a, if it's a widely marketed deal with a national self-storage brokerage outfit, we'll still bid on the property and we'll still underwrite it. We miss those deals by a wide, wide margin. We, um, I don't want to say stretched, but slightly stretched on a deal a few months ago, I guess maybe four months ago, and we got to 25 million and I traded for 33. Wow. But we just, we just can't make sense of that. I mean, there's, there's no, there's just not a story for that. If you're, if you're paying that much, either you have no cost of capital, you're underwriting just untenable revenue growth, or you're showing a three cap exit, uh, whatever their assumptions were, we, we couldn't get there. Most of our deal flow. And it's increasing the ratio this year, especially most of our deal flow has been off market and off market gets thrown around a lot, right? Is it really off market or is it just, you know, it got shopped to 20 people just didn't. Hit <laughs> yeah. And I, I believe that our off market deals truly are off market. They come through broker relationships. We do a fair amount of direct to seller marketing and people in the self storage, the private real estate uh, space of self storage, I should say often reference the mom and pop sellers. Mm -hmm. Well, the mom and pops are, you know, they're not morons. A lot of them, frankly, just, they don't want to poke the bear, right? They're, they're at 98%. They've owned the deal for 15 years. They, you know, cash flow 20 grand a month, whatever it might be. And they put it in their bank account. They don't, well, they don't want to raise rents. They just want to keep things as they are. They don't want to work too hard. So we'll buy a deal like that on trailing financials. It was what probably at a probably very low cap rate, but we increase that yield on costs from rent increases and and whatnot. But yeah, the recompetition's tough. The REITs are definitely going to places they weren't before to get product. So a couple of years ago, CubeSmart was only focused on primary, secondary markets. Now they're they're bidding on stuff uh, in places they have not operated before just to get inventory. So it's kind of trickling, trickling down to the smaller submarkets for sure. But yeah, again, if it's widely marketed, we we can't even come close. Hey, that makes sense. You need to again go go back to knowing your buy box. And I think it's a great point about mom and pops not being morons. It's a good way to put it. They just have different goals with their investment than we do. Maybe we want to maximize the value, maximize our return, but maybe they're retired. They just want that cash flow. They don't want to poke the bear is a great way to put it. So you're doing these deals off market. I, I'd like to hone in on the broker relationships aspect of that and, and building relationships with 
self-storage brokers? Do they, you know, commercial brokers are maybe in a specific area. Do you find that an individual broker person might specialize in self-storage or let's dig into the weeds of how do you find that right individual, you know, to build a relationship with? Yeah, it's a slow process. Um, brokers are like everybody else in the world. They just want to get paid. <laughs> yep. If you if you tie up their deal, they want to know you're going to close. So generally, I would say our broker relationships have come from buying a marketed deal at some point or softly marketed deal, performing and being easy to deal with, and then having a postmortem and just kind of remind them of who we are. The next deal you get, we'd love to take a look at it. We have a broker in the Midwest that brought us an off-market Michigan portfolio. He brought us another portfolio uh, just east of Memphis, Tennessee. Those deals have been home runs. And he gave us pricing guidance. We said, yes, we can meet that. Uh, it's the price their seller wanted. So we signed up, did our DD, and we closed. So these are relationships that are tough to build on you know, a first deal. But once you perform once on something small or convince, convince someone of your ability to execute um, they want to bring you stuff because they just, want, they just want to close, right? Versus a competitive bidding war, getting a new buyer on the hook they never dealt with before and they back out at the last minute, which is happening more and more lately with interest rates and you know debt changing. So yeah, just performing once and then asking them to bring us deals next time and performing again. Nice. Makes a lot of sense. You have that track record. Do you find uh, that the individual at a given brokerage might specialize in self-storage or they kind of a jack of all trades or a jack of, you know, multiple trades, you know, if that Marcus and Millichap or whatever, uh, will they handle everything or just like one asset class? There's some folks that kind of straddle multiple areas, but the, the good ones stay laser focused on self-storage. That's all they do. And they're known for it. They get the calls from sellers when they want to take their portfolio to market. We've had some guys too, some deals that were not necessarily off market, but poorly marketed that were listed on on the MLS with the residential broker, right? Oh. And yeah, and it's it's somebody's sister-in-law or a family relationship. And they don't they don't advertise it well. The world doesn't know how to underwrite it. You know, their 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 cap rate is revenue divided by purchase price, right? <laughs> yeah. So there's there's arbitrage in deals that are inefficiently marketed as much as there are in deals that are off market. Okay. Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Before we move on to the last part of the show, I want to throw this question at you. What do you think is the biggest mistake that new self-storage investors make when they're getting into the business? I frankly think, I know we're all limited by the amount of capital we have. Of course, we can't go out and, you know, a, a new guy can't go out and buy a $10 million deal very easily. But I think one big mistake, a lot of people who are just kind of getting into the business, wanted to dip their toe in, maybe they had a small liquidity event, they sold an apartment building. I think they buy deals that are too small, both in terms of net rentable square footage and cost basis. Whether you're, I mean, we, we, we automate these things here and there, but we also have a lot of onsite personnel. Let's say you're going to staff your facility. If you have an employee working there on a 25,000 foot facility, that guy's going to cost you as much as an employee working on a 40,000 foot facility. But you can't amortize those fixed costs across as many square feet. You have subscriptions like if you use a software uh, to manage your property, which you probably do, that software doesn't care if your deal is a big one or a small one. It's still the same monthly nut. So I think just buying deals that are too small, that not only from an operations perspective and amortizing fixed cost perspective, but also from a buyer pool perspective when it comes time to sell. If you are a 25,000 foot storage deal, 
there are probably not as many buyers out there for you compared to owning a 50 or 60,000 foot storage deal. Okay. So yeah. That was generally doing, that's easier said than done, right? It's like, well, I don't have <laughs> money. You know, I can't buy a 50,000 foot facility, but you know, call up your buddies and put a deal together. I love it. Makes a lot of sense. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. The first step to growing your wealth is tracking your wealth, income, spending, and everything else about your finances. You can start tracking your wealth for free and get six free months of wealth advisory with personal capital by going to escapingwallstreet.com and using our link. Create your free account today and automate the way you track your money. Personal capital is my preferred way to track my finances, and now we're making that available for listeners. Terms and conditions apply. See the personal capital website for details. Once again, to get the offer, go to escapingwallstreet.com and use our link. Back to the show. All right, Jacob, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let it rip. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? And this question is a financial response, I assume, right? It's up to interpretation. Uh, We take education off the table because a lot of real estate investors, I think, give that as a lazy answer. (laughs) Let's see here. The, The best deals we've ever done were, we never dreamt they would have done as well as they did. In recent history, I mentioned earlier, we focus on self-storage. Well, we're real estate entrepreneurs and we dabble in some other deals too. So we had the idea to, um, this isn't the best one period, but it's the best, most recent. We, we bought a busted building in downtown Denver and we thought we were going to put a liquor store in there and we were going to operate it ourselves, right? We've got all the storage around the country. We're not real heavy on extra time, but yeah, we're going to go to the liquor store in downtown Denver. So we bought the deal off market. We had been chasing this thing for like three years. Um, I think we paid a million two fifty for it and we sat on it. We decided, nah, probably not a good idea to look to do a liquor store ourselves. We'll get the liquor license teed up. And we did, we got the liquor license and we sold it to an owner operator like six months later for 2 million. Nice. So sometimes indecision is a positive thing, right? Uh, we, knew, <laughs> we knew it was a good buy and obviously all boats float in the rising tide lately. But in, in very recent history, not self-storage has been one of our kind of bigger accidental home run. Nice. No, that's a, that's an interesting deal. And Hey, sometimes indecision now works to your benefit. Yeah. And I, I didn't, it wasn't a syndication, but didn't have enough cash personally to, to do it in any one of my partners individually. So we called up some buddies, everybody put some money in, we bought it, scratched our heads. And then we sold it a little bit later for a, for a healthy return. I feel like I might've seen somebody posting about that deal on, on social media. I'll have to ask you about it when we stop. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it was, it was a fun one. Nice. So we had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I got to think of a new one here because I always mention this on the podcast, <laughs> but, I, but I will again. We had the idea to build a house out of shipping containers. And we thought we we're going to do it quick, that we're going to do it cheap. We're going to turn out 10 of, these a, 10 of these a year, buy land, have the containers built within like two or three months, sell it. And this container house, this was a long time ago, probably 10 years plus, but this container house took a lot more time and cost a lot more money than a stick built house would have for a number of reasons we'd have to go into. And really all that we learned, unfortunately, was don't build a house out of shipping. <laughs> That's all we learned. Yeah. Yeah. And the other mistake in self-storage, I guess, thankfully we don't have any investors in this. It's just me and my, my two partners. We had the proverbial 1031 gun to our head. 
and we had identified another property, but we had to, we had to get one more to defer that gain. So we bought this just chunky storage deal, not a great location. It's never performed very well. And despite our best efforts, we've gotten it nominally better than there was when we bought it, but that's been a rough one. We're looking at as our, looking at that as our tax escrow account in the exchange. So it's not, it's a, it's a rough deal. It's hanging in there, but we get to defer a big gain for an indefinite period. Yeah. That, that 1031 exchange kind of can cut both ways in that the ticking clock sometimes can push folks to make decisions that, you know, ultimately aren't optimal. But yes, yeah. Well, very briefly, I mean, depends on what your gain is, but I encourage people to ask themselves, would I buy this, this deal if I was not in a 1031, right? And if you can't look yourself in the mirror and say, uh, yes, I would, then you might consider paying your taxes. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to look at it. My favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? You, you got to quantify it, but the most important thing I've learned, I've been investing full-time for 15 years, and the most important thing I've learned is take a risk, take action, take a risk. You have to mute the downside and quantify reasonable upside. Uh, there's no perfect deal out there, especially in this environment, but if you got interested in investing in real estate, say two years ago, especially residential, you're, you've probably had a hard time finding a deal. You've had a hard time pulling the trigger on that first acquisition. but. We lost money on fix and flips. We used to do a lot of them uh, many, many years ago. Well, actually not that many years ago. We, we paused doing them a few years ago. We've been doing them since like 2006. And we got beat up a few times. And you learn by failing. We remember our failures like they were yesterday. Our successes, uh, they seem to just fade away really quick. And often success is, it's execution and it's work ethic, but sometimes there's an element of luck when you're successful too, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Most important thing I've learned is take a risk. If you're not in the game, if you're on the sidelines, um, your 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 opportunity cost of your time is is substantial. So get in the game and take a risk. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, sharing all this uh, wisdom about self storage investing and real estate entrepreneurship. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, if they want to learn more about what you're up to or anything like that, where can they track you down? Yeah, we always love to talk shop about real estate. Folks can email me, jacob at vanwestpartners.com. Then go to our website, vanwestpartners.com, or hit me on LinkedIn, Jacob Vanderslice. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you don't mind. I appreciate that so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys. That gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street Casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.